through the grace of God and fellowship of people like you and sponsorship, I've been sober since February the 4th, 1964, and for that I'm very grateful. Um, I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me here. Mary Pearl and I were laughing. Uh, <clears throat> when the, the readers get up and leave, you know, I still, uh, I suffer from alcoholism and not alcoholism, so when they get up and leave, it's like, oh my God, what did I say? You know, <laughs> didn't I take a shower this morning or something? And being the Al-Anon that she is, Mary Pearl says, rats from the sinking ship. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. I want to thank you for the fruit basket. Um, the committee gave us each a fruit basket, and uh, and I always enjoy that. Um, I, do you ever think about, I don't know how it is here in South Carolina, but the, and I kind of pondered this from time to time. Wonder what the, I wondered what the origin was for, for clapping and hooting and hollering and stuff, you know, and... Uh, it's kind of almost like a revival, you know. It's a, and I'm not Southern, and I'm, <clears throat> I've never uh, really been much of a churchgoer, but not going anyway now. Um, but I, but I go to AA all the time, and 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 I think, you know, I used to sit around. Do you remember when you were in your disease, whether it was Alanonism or alcoholism? <clears throat> and I'll tell you, one's just as deadly as the other. I'll tell. You. <laughs> And I'm serious about that, and it really is. Um, and they don't even drink, you know. It's just, it's a, whoa, shivery. Um, but do you remember? You remember? I mean, it's like nothing was funny. Nothing was funny. Funny. It was all serious. And you sat in your seat, and you were serious. And you didn't think about anybody but yourself. Try doing that and hooting and hollering. <laughs> you can't do it. You can't go <laughs> like that and think about yourself. If you did, you'd get embarrassed or something, you know? You can't think about yourself like that. Think about it. But when you, I mean, it's, it's like, how can you be in self? And, and jump, you know, get all excited and everything and get into what the, get in the room. You know, you can't be in a room like this and not be in the room. Well, you can. I mean, if you're real dedicated about it, you can. <laughs> but you can't help but be infected by this enthusiasm. And so I, got, I thought, well, what is a revival? Well, a revival is a place where you go to get charged up with with the the feeling that God gives you that things are going to be all right, that he's good and he's for me and he's going to help me if I all I have to do is ask him. So a revival is where you go and hoot and holler and stomp and carry on to get the spirit of God inside of you. Well, do you know what the definition of enthusiasm is? It comes from the Greek word Enthos, which means the God within. So, when that really spiritual person who sits at the front of the meeting and looks like the advertisement for a hush puppy ad, 
criticizes you for hooting and hollering, just say, it's the God within coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's what they do in my group. Whoa! I don't know where it came from, but Johnny Carson, I think. Actually, it came from the Johnny Carson show. Anyway, as I said, I'm Peggy Martin, and 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 an alcoholic, definitely an alcoholic, and and I I have uh, also pondered this morning that see, Dennis is a mean person. He looks like a nice person, but he's really got this streak of meanness in him because he knows that morning is my least favorite time of the whole day. Um. I take a nap in the afternoon. Um, I go to bed about 11 o'clock, and I don't like to get up in the morning, so I don't really have a favorite time of day at all. (laughs) But morning is my least favorite time of day. And so he, because I have no defenses in the morning. You you know what I'm saying? It's like what you see is what you get. It's just kind of, kind of, it's before I get my stuff together. You know, I just kind of hang out all over. Nerves are like hanging out the ends of my fingers, and I don't care. You know, I just blah, blah, blah. And uh, he he came out and to the Cornhusker, and and in there they have. Oh, I've always done a um, or have for a number of years done a marathon at the Cornhusker in the early morning, and I always end up crying. I mean, I I'm so vulnerable and and so. Um, touched by everything. It's before I draw my cloak around me and get on with the day, if you will. And uh, so he, I guess he wanted to see me cry, see, and there's this meanness in him that just had to come out. So he put me here on Saturday morning. Also, the real alcoholics are here on Saturday morning because and don't go out and tell those people who aren't here that they're not real alcoholics. But you know what I'm saying? It's like you got to be dedicated to be here at 1030 on Saturday morning. <laughs> but see, I've always been, uh, a counselor or those experts in the field would say that, that I am a compulsive, obsessive person. The problem, <laughs> the problem is, see, I'm just sort of a pig. I don't like to fancy stuff up. I'm like Jack. I don't understand words like that. I know what it means to say I'm a pig. I'm just a pig. And what I want is I want it all. I want it all. And if I'm going to come to a convention, I want it all. I don't want to go to this meeting and not go to that meeting or go to this one and not go to that one. I want it all. That's what I came here for. I came here to be an A and A. You know, I want to go to A&A. I know people who, for example, will come tonight, but they won't come any other time. I don't know what that is, but maybe it's BB. <laughs> but it isn't AA. Not the way I go to AA. AA is like, a, for me, it's a way of life, and it's a state of mind, and it's a, it's a fellowship, and it's, it's, it's a sponsor and it's a home group and it's meeting makers make it. And and although going to a meeting and sitting in a meeting will not make you well and it won't make you a member of AA and Al-Anon, sooner or later, if you continue to do that, as I 
this is the only brilliant thing I've done ever in my whole life. It's just continued to show up. Sooner or later, something will penetrate this dangerous neighborhood. <laughs> if if I'm sitting and I am taking a stroll through this dangerous neighborhood up here, somebody somehow in a meeting is going to look at me or say something or catch my attention which will divert me out of this dangerous neighborhood. Because it's, it's, it's weird in here sometimes. <laughs> now, I have been sober for 28 years, but it's still weird in here sometimes. And I take a risk when I tell you about this. Mary Pearl knows me well, and Hank and Linda know me, and my husband certainly does, but, and Jim knows me. And it's a, it's a risk that I take, you know, uh, by telling you this stuff that goes on in, in my mind. Because it's like maybe somebody saying, geez, I don't want what she has. You know, after 28 years, she still thinks these weird thoughts. But you see, I'm sober. And I am a better Peggy Martin today than I've ever been. So, see, I had some pretty bad material to start with. And this is the best shot I've got. This is, if I didn't believe in God, which I do, but if I didn't believe in God, this would be my best shot. Because then I wouldn't be going anywhere, would I? I mean, I don't, if I don't believe in God or I don't believe in here and hereafter, I would never go anywhere after here. This is it. This is the best poker game in town. And I better make it everything that I want it to be. And so I know this. I know that I will get out of what I do, what I put into it, exactly. If I put 100%, 110% into something, I'm going to get 110% back. If I put 5% into it, I'm going to get 5% back. And being a pig, I don't want 5% of anything. It's like when I was drinking, I might take a drink if I knew there was just one to be offered. But to me, it was almost like not worth it. You know, I mean, one drink. People say, you know, come in and have a drink. One? <laughs> one? I mean, I don't understand one drink. I never understood one drink. drives me crazy to see people get a drink and sip and sip and sip for hours, it seems like. I, I just, I want to scream, drink it! <laughs> don't, don't sip it, drink it! Don't you know what it'll do for you? <laughs> don't you know where it'll take you? But see, it doesn't do for them what it did for me, and it doesn't take them where it took me. That's the difference between them and me. But that doesn't remove from me my desire to want to tell them to drink it. I, I was, I am still a, like a human dichotomy. I'm like an, like an oxymoron. I'm just split. Like, a, like an earthquake or something happened to me, you know, a long time ago and, 
and the and the split. I mean, the you can you can't see the fault much anymore, but the cracks are still there, kinda. And that's exactly the way it was. And I'll give you some examples. You know, you've heard this said, and I've heard it a million times that we don't feel the same. And I don't think Alanons do either. I think they grow up feeling funny too. But I grew up feeling funny, and I had the well, I could give you real good reasons why I felt funny. You know, I could, my father was in the Air Force, and we traveled all the time. And people said, well, that made you insecure. No, it didn't. It was great, because I was like a cat with a litter box. And when the litter box got full of crap, I moved on. It was great. I would go to a different, and I'd mess up in a different place, you know, and then I'd move and I'd mess up in a different place. It was great. It also taught me how to survive. It taught me how to walk into a, a meeting or something, and no matter how I feel on the inside, it taught me to stick out my hand and say, hi, I'm Peggy. Whether I feel like saying, you don't want, you don't want to greet me, you know, I'm having a bad day, I'm, I'm afraid. You know, I mean, people don't want to hear that, but it taught me to take an action, into action, that is totally contrary to what I'm feeling like at the time. It taught me to survive. It taught me to make the best of the things that I had in my life. It taught me to maximize on things that I had. So that was one side. On the other side, it presented me with constant opportunities for feeling inferior and insecure. You know, because I felt that way anyway. And we would move and I would feel I'd have to make a whole new batch of friends. And I'd have to, to to face a whole new batch of fear. So on the one hand, I was this fearful person. On the other hand, I was this seemingly confident person. And so that's like a dichotomy. It's like a, it's like a uh, an oxymoron. It's not the two halves don't fit. You know. And and uh, well, for example, I was in the uh, sixth grade. I was the chairman of the Berlin Candy Lift. Is anybody in here old enough to remember when there was a Berlin Wall and they we sent food over there to the people in Berlin and stuff? Well, I was the chairman in sixth grade for taking up money for this candy lift, and there was a kid in there that I couldn't stand anyway. And his name, uh, we, he he wore these white nylon shirts and high water jeans and white socks and and uh, tennis shoes with lightning bolts on the side, and we called him Flash. And I didn't like Flash. He weighed about 639 pounds. And he was like, had these little tiny shoulders and, and these great big hips. He was upside down for a man. You know, he was, looked like an avocado kind of. And I didn't like this guy. I didn't like him at all because he didn't, and he didn't like me. It was a mutual thing. And uh, he wouldn't bring in his money. So I told him, hey, you don't bring, and I was real bossy, real bossy. But inside I always felt, I think, you know, you don't, you don't want to bring in your money, do you? You, you real, you know what I'm saying? You, can people, can you understand what I'm saying? And so I, but I would be up front with it, you know, I said, Flash, you either bring in your money tomorrow or I'm going to beat you up. Well, I weighed, I weighed 56 pounds, you know, I was, there, it was going to be no match. Um, but he didn't bring in his money. Well, I'd open my mouth. You ever open your mouth and your mouth write a check your body can't deliver? Well, that's how I felt, you know, and I, but I was also canny. And so after school, uh, I waited behind with the, my dad was stationed out Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio after school. I waited behind the bushes at Randolph Elementary 
And when he passed by, I leapt out from those bushes with the biggest karate cry you ever heard, landed on his back, and smashed my fist up into his nose, and I heard this crunch, and I felt blood go, and he fell to the ground sobbing, and oh, and I felt wonderful. Just the, the power that I felt with that, you know, that power. Didn't get his money, but I felt that power. And that, and that's a, that in itself is an more. Now I was a little bitty kid with a great big ego. A little bitty kid with a, an inferiority complex and this arrogance. And, and today, you ever, you got anybody in your group that's like a know-it-all? Uh, maybe not. Maybe not in South Carolina, right? <laughs> but do you know people in your group that are just like really sort of what I call the bleeding deacons of the group and stuff. And believe me, I've been a bleeding deacon. <clears throat> I have to remember that an excess of arrogance is a deficiency in self-esteem. And it's hard for, you know, what I want to do is go up and say, you arrogant SOB, don't you realize your your self-esteem is low? You know, no, I don't want to do that. I want to punch him is what I want to do. But... <clears throat> It's true, and I had to remember that with me, is that I had this. But it was like this. I, On the one hand, I, I'm an artist, and I'm, I'm smart. You know, I, when I was in school, they, how many people in here, the teachers, they couldn't quite define you, so they give you these tests? How many people were tested, like in elementary school? Nobody. Well, yeah, there we go. Well, I was tested, you know, and they said, this, she has a very high IQ. So on the one hand, I felt very smart, like I was a, an intellectual giant or something. And yet, on the other hand, I was just as equally convinced that I was stupid. And on the one hand, I felt, you know, very well rounded because I had did all these different things and I would participate in all these different activities. And on the other hand, I felt inadequate. And on the one hand, I thought that I was better than sliced bread. And on the other hand, I looked something like grit the day after. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It was like I couldn't seem to get this together. On the one hand, I was absolutely convinced that I was lower than whale poop on the ocean floor, and on the other, I was just as equally convinced that I was presidential material, which ain't saying much. <laughs> but when you have those two things going, I didn't say that. <laughs> Take it off the tape, Bob. And, but when you've got those two things going, this human dichotomy, this human oxymoron, that creates a lot of tension. And when I drank, it's like, oh, God. Whew. You remember that? Just, oh, right, like Jack said that night. Oh, right. It's okay. And uh, I was a real skinny kid, you know, and I, and I, when people, along about 13, 14 years old, people 
of my sex started developing curves and hips and boobs and stuff. And uh, and I looked like a, a picket out of a picket fence. You know, I mean, I was just, just looked. Just had no waist, had no hips, and had no boobs. And I'd take a drink, and that stuff would go in, and it would roll down my throat, and it would hit my stomach, and it would spread out. My waist would nip in, and my my hips would flare out. My boobs would grow. And I'd be, and I'd just, oh. <laughs> and I'd say, you doing anything, honey? <laughs> and I wouldn't touch him with a ten-foot pole. You know, he'd be one of those people you'd want to erp on, you know, and I'd get to, get to drinking and he'd be handsome and witty, you know. And, of course, really what it was was he had a Ford Fairlane convertible. <laughs> so there I was. You know, I was on the honor roll. I was making good grades, and yet I was I could be good just so long. Just so long. It was a little girl that had a little curl right in the middle of her forehead. And when she was bad, she was very, very good. No, when she was good, she was very, very good. And when she was bad, she was horrid. And uh, I remember that. I remember that poem. I remember that feeling. And, you know, being good, I was good when I was scared. And I was bad when I just couldn't stand being good anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's like I was good because I knew it was the right thing to do, but it was boring to be good. And so I'd be good till I was just bored to tears. Then I'd go right over here and I'd be just as bad. I mean, I didn't seem to have, even then, have a middle ground with me. I was just either good or I was bad. And uh, and I loved to drink. I mean, I, oh... I'm not one of these kind of people who went next door and borrowed a cup of sherry, got the vapors, and came into AA. I just, it didn't happen that way. I drank. And I loved to drink. I loved, I loved drinking. I did. I loved, I loved beer. Uh, I know that's bad. I mean, it's not, I love beer though. I just, I just, you could snap the top off of them, because in those days we didn't have any, uh, pop top cans and stuff. You had to have a church key which we it was a bottle opener or a can opener, and it, it opened the doors to heaven. That's why we called it a church key. And uh, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but it's the truth. That's why we called it a church key. And uh, I'd snap the top off that bottle, you know, and that, that whiff of beer come out and smell first just a little bit like skunk. <laughs> Remember that? You know, then you get the beer smell. I don't know what that stuff was, but I just loved it, whatever it was. And I, that stuff would go in me and I'd change. And you'd change. And the world changed. And it was like magic, you know. It's like Tinkerbell came along and went, and threw fairy dust on me or something. And, and I was all different. And I, 
I felt right with the world. I could fit in wherever I went, and I went a lot of places. Um, I drank in, in Texas a lot. Uh, I used to drink Lone Star beer, which is not very good beer, but who cares? It was like 89 cents a six-pack or something. And uh, Hey, you know, it was a long time ago. And uh, but I and I drank in Europe. I went to school over in Europe. I went to the University of Paris in France and became an, an interpreter. Went to the University of Geneva uh, at interpreter school and you know. But it was kind of like and I've had I really had I've had a very exciting life. But when I was over there, it was like I was I I it, it's like I didn't go to Europe and go to school over there and have a drink once in a while. I was drinking and went to Europe. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, oh well, you know, I just went to Europe and I was, but I didn't live any differently there than I lived here drinking. I just drank. Except I had, they insisted that I speak a different language when I was over there because they didn't understand Texan. You know, they just didn't. And uh, I could speak French better uh, drinking than not. <laughs> and the reason was because it removed all my inhibitions. You know, I could just, you know, I you know, I got into the usual scrapes and and uh, skirmishes and stuff. And uh, but it, it really started getting bad when I was in Geneva, and I I drank way way too much one night, and we were celebrating the anniversary of the the university and uh, and uh, we marched on the American embassy I wasn't aware of that I didn't know what embassy it was it mattered to me <laughs> in a way I was kind of like president elect clinton you know I didn't uh, I I demonstrated but who was there I mean I didn't know I was there you know I have a friend who says <laughs> He wished he'd had exciting blackouts that people were always talking about the exciting blackouts that they came out of, you know, when they were drinking. And he always came out of a blackout in the dry cleaners. <laughs> and the guy was looking at him saying, you want boxed or hangers? <laughs> and he'd say to Murray, the dry cleaner, uh, could you repeat that, Murray? I just got here, you know. <laughs> and that's the way I kind of felt, too. Nothing really exciting happened in that those blackouts that I know of, but... But maybe I led a very racy life and didn't know it. I don't know. But I did come, you know, I went, I remember ended, ending up in Catholic Mass one time in Geneva because I felt so remorseful for my behavior from the night before and, and that kind of thing. But nothing really happened except something important happened. And what was happening to me was that a disintegration of the human spirit was going on. And, and I didn't know it. The disintegration of Peggy as I know, as I knew her, was going on. And in a way, I really believe that that's what surrender is all about. Is an ingredient in surrender is a death of myself. It is, it is that time in each of our lives, whether we're alcoholic or alanine, where we are so tired. We are so exhausted. We are so out of human resource that we cannot help but face the truth. 
the truth is there and it hits us in the face. And we either accept it as it is exactly and surrender or we go on rationalizing and denying until the next time. And wouldn't it be nice if we could just surrender one time, just once? But my life has been full of countless surrenders. Every day, something. Because God gave me a free will. That's what he gave me um, to differentiate you and me from all the birds and the animals and everything, is that he gave us a free will. It also differentiates me from him. Though, often in my life, I have thought that I was him. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> and so that free will enables me to choose the actions, choose the way that I'm going to go, so that when I surrender one, now, fortunately for me, when I surrendered to the fact that I was powerless over alcohol, it was a total surrender. It was just like a total surrender. But it was it was a to, it was a surrender to my powerlessness over alcohol. And I have had surrenders in the process of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous, which has been just as deep and just as effective. But there has never been a more necessary one than that surrender to my powerlessness over alcohol. And I must remember that. And I must remember something else. I can only share with you my experience. My belief is probably a result of, a, you know, repeated experience. But my belief to you doesn't make a damn. But my experience, I know what I'm talking about when it comes to my experience. I have my experience to draw my belief may change according to my experience, but my experience is mine. And my experience was that I had gotten to the place where I was absolutely, I was so tired. I don't know if I can use a better word. If you can come up with a better word, I would appreciate it. But I was so tired. I was exhausted. I was out of power. I had tried everything. I was, I mean, I was drinking a quart of vodka a day. Pop off, 80 proof, rock gut, $2.80 a quart vodka. I don't think it costs much more than that now. It's that bad. You know, it, it's that bad. And when I drank it, I smelled something like sour potatoes. Because I think that's what it's made from. But it, it was, I mean, I was, I was saturated with it. And I want to make this very clear because how many people in here have been sober like a year or less? Can I see your hand? This is important. It was important for me because the biggest, the most important gift that I have in Alcoholics Anonymous is my Ability to relate to you and your ability to relate to me as one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. I can tell you how I felt, what happened to me, and if you can relate to that, 
then you get the glimmer, if not now, later, that this is where you belong. And I remember feeling like I was going to blow up. I had a feeling inside of me like there was a porcupine that had been turned inside out. There was, it was like I was about ready to explode at any minute. And my, the hair on my arms stood up. Remember that? Did you ever itch? You know, old Joe Leaf used to have this, he said, oh, you know, throw out those dumb 20 questions. Let me give you some questions. And he said the first question he would ask is, did you ever wake up and find out that you had sunburned the roof of your mouth? (laughs) I, yes, yes. I mean, don't you remember? Passed out like this, you know? And if the sun didn't get there, it dried out to tell your palate, your soft palate up there, you know, was hideous. I could understand stuff like that. I was so, I mean, I was so, you, you know, if the hair stood up on my arm, think about this neighborhood. Oh, my Lord. What a mess. You know, because I also know something about science. And I can tell you this that your, our brain, every single one of our brains, is made up of bundles of, of neurons. And these neurons are millions of cells. And they, every cell in there, has, in these little bunches of neurons, these little cells like wave at one another. They have these little arms, that, little tiny arms that stick out like this. And this is very true. Don't argue with me. This is true. <laughs> If there's a doctor in here, he'll tell you this is true. And these little tiny, tiny arms wave at each other like this, and they tickle one another. And they, there's billions of them in there going, and they create an electrical energy. And the electrical energy that is our brain is fueled by the pumping of our heart. And these little things, you know, and they make this energy and we think and we blink and we breathe and we move and we remember and we talk and all kinds of things. We yeah, Everything, everything. And these little things don't like alcohol at all in any form. It's true. And they, when they're wiggling along like this and we take a drink, the, the alcohol goes into our system, it goes up to our brain, the first, one of the first places it goes in our bloodstream, and it these little things go like this and when they draw back from one another like this these little sparks that jump across the path there at the synapse they have no place to go so they go and they they and they uh, fry the ends of these things here so you like get fried, you know, and it it and they sizzle something like bacon, you know. So you get and you get short circuited, and you do that enough, you can't feel your feet. You shuffle, can't feel the ends of your fingers, can't remember where you parked the car, you can't remember who your wife is, 
you can't ask her a question. You can't answer a question like, "Do you have a job?" I don't know. You know, you can't. You can't do any of those things because you're you've got brain damage. You're damaged. You're brain damaged. And the other thing it is is it dries out these little sacks because alcohol is a desiccant, and it dries out these little sacks so that once fried, always fried. I mean, you're. Think how brilliant we could have been if we'd have just quit drinking years ago, you know? <laughs> if we could have harnessed, if we could have harnessed all that brain power that we had that we fried off, we could drive them into conventions. <laughs> but anyway, so so here you are. See, with your fried set of brain, and and another thing too is it like makes you really nervous when you get these dry sacks up here in your head. I had a guy come up to me, I don't know, it's been several years ago, and I had told this thing about the the synapses and the fries and the bacon and the whole business. And he said, I hope I'm, he said, I was sitting in that audience, and I heard you describe that, and I thought it was so cute. And he said, just real cutesy and everything. But he said, I went back out and drank again, and I was sitting at the bar, and all I could hear was, So the good news is that if you never drink again, you don't have to hear your brain die. But if the bad news is, if you do, you're going to remember this. And so when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had fried brain. I had on my hand, my arms were, you know, my hair was standing up on my arms. I weighed 152 pounds. I was uh, had cirrhosis of the liver. I had uh, yellow skin. I had uh, my eyes were brown uh, from the jaundice. My hair was dead. And I had a drinking uniform. I wore gray stretch pants, size 14, and a blue uh, turtleneck sweater. And I wore my, I, I, my hair was, my head was flat on one side. It was my passing out side. You ever notice you pass out on the same side? I passed out on the same side. And I had this stupid, stupid little blue bow. You, you remember those tiny bows we used to put in the sides of our heads? Remember that? Those little teeny things? Really? Yeah. I, I put this little tiny bow over here on my passing outside. And you know, when I was, even when I was drinking, I would say to myself, I've got to get it together. I'm going to get it together. I've got to shape up, you know. So I, for a few days, I'd like, you know, shape up. You know, it's like putting a gumby back together or something. <laughs> Shape up. And uh, I'd, I'd get dressed, you know, and I'd pat my hair. I never combed it because I could get raped. You know, it just hurt. You know, I'd rake, rake, rake. And, oh, just, oh, it's like putting your fingers down a blackboard. And, uh, but I always, I'd put on makeup. See, when I'd shaping myself up, I'd put on makeup. But I'd never taken off the makeup I had on before. See? <laughs> so I had these these eyes, <laughs> kind of looked like Al-Anon eyes, you know. They were. <laughs> it was like Mary Pearl's going to get me this afternoon. I got, it looked like two tarantulas parked right here. Okay. <laughs> All this stuff all down around my face and everything. And uh, finally, I was looking in the mirror one day, and, and I caught sight of myself. 
I had a, I, I never had enough to drink. You know, I never, I can never save. I would go out and buy a half gallon or a quart or whatever because I think, well, I'll save a pint, you know, for the next day to get, get me going, you know, straighten up my things and stuff. And I could never keep it, you know, I would just drink it all. I just a pig, you know, so I, I, I would be out and I, I caught sight of myself. Um, with a bottle of vodka and there was just a tiny bit down in the bottom and I had learned and this is, this is so hard for me to say because I remember it um, the depth to which I had sunk because it may not have been a depth for you but it was a depth for me because there was this glass if you warm glass liquid will roll easily and I'd warmed up, the, I was warm enough to put that bottle of vodka so that I could lift that bottle up and this one lousy drop that was in the bottom would roll down into my mouth. And I caught sight of myself. And, and I saw truth. And I ended up in a, uh, out in the country at Melwood Farm in a, all in Maryland. Um, and I hadn't had a drink since. And this place was not a treatment center, per se. This was a drying out place, really. They kept us out there for 28 days with $585. I know because my dad gave me the cancel check that he wrote to the place. $585. And cheap at the price. Because it was the start of a, a, not, not a second chance. A brand new chance. And, uh, it was at Bellwood Farm that I dried out. I dried out there and they, they took me to meetings and, and I met the first in a series of people who, um, have become my heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm sorry if you don't think that there should be heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous. My experience is that I have heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have those people in my life who come from the most unexpected sources, at unexpected places, who help me to participate in my own recovery. And those people that are heroes to me may be AAs and they may be my dad, he was a real human being, let me tell you, but he's one of my heroes. Because I knew one thing, and that was, he would let me have the dignity of my failure. But he would always love me. Now, I have been a person all my life, and I don't know why, I don't even care, who has been so afraid to let you love me, because loving is a risk, and it's a vulnerability that I don't, I was not willing to share. There was a guy, I always use this explanation, but it's the, it's the best one I know. There was a guy in Houston, a little boy named David, who was born without a immune system. 
And he was put, when he was born, this was long before they knew anything about AIDS or anything about autoimmune disorders, they put him in a, a sterile environment. He was called the boy in the bubble. Do you remember him? And he, he lived in this germ-free atmosphere. He lived in this sterile bubble where they people fed him with gloves. And they passed the school books into him through a tray, and they fed him through this tray. And anything he wanted, he he was supplied in this bubble. Only thing was, he had no music, so he couldn't come out of the bubble. Well, when he was 16, he made a decision to come out of the bubble. And you know why? He was doing something. He had the courage to do something that I didn't have the courage to do for years. He wanted to feel the touch of another person's hand. I didn't have that kind of courage. He placed his life on the line. And of course he died. I don't have to die. I just have to, I have, the part of me has to die that says, you gotta run your own show. The part of me has to die that no longer has the power but thinks it does. The part of me has to die that is the character defect that will lead me to drinking. The part of me has to die that says, you don't have to go to so many meetings. Why do you still go to four meetings a week? Why do you still have to sponsor these people? Why can't somebody else say, that part of me has to die? So that the other part of me can live. I'm like, at the time that I entered Alcoholics Anonymous, I was like, have you ever cut open a golf ball? Who's, who's cut up on a golf ball? I think they could do away with the MNTI. If we could just take a golf ball, if we could just go to a meeting of alcoholics and I'm going to say, who's cut open a golf ball? Just say, just stay here. You're an, either an alcoholic or a very sick Al-Anon. You know, you, because I cut open that golf ball. What's inside? Do you remember what was inside of it? First, there's miles and miles and miles and miles of this little rubber stuff, this narrow rubber band stuff. And then inside of my golf ball, there was this little hard ball. And I, of course, I knew something was inside there, so I couldn't get into it, so I took a hammer and smashed it. And inside of it was this black stuff. And I related to that golf ball. I was a person with this dimpled shell, insulated from God, isolated from people by miles and miles and miles of rubber band so that you wouldn't see and he wouldn't know that inside of me was this black junk. And what my sponsor told me 
when I first got into Alcoholics Anonymous is just come to meetings. Get involved in the fellowship. Take a job. Get a job. I mean, a real job. Um, welcome people, that kind of thing. And we'll worry about the black junk later. Okay, so that's exactly what happened to me. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I did not interview for my sponsor. Very common today to go around interviewing for sponsors. It's like, well, no, she doesn't match up. No, he isn't quite right. No, he's too tough. No, he's too, you know, whatever. Nobody gave me that. I didn't know anything. I was like, I was like a human atomic bomb explosion. I didn't know what had happened. I just was looking around like a dog on the freeway. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and I was scared to death. And she just walked up to me. She had this hair that was Marcel. You know, where they took those things and crimped that gray hair. She had that gray hair that these things were instruments of the devil. They had these wires that hung out of this thing that looked like a rocket ship or something, and these little things, and they crimped your hair, and I think they actually crimped your scalp. I really think they crimped, because she had this hair that was Marcel like that. She looked like if she got back there at the back where Bob is, and she took a run at me with that head lowered, that she'd waffle me with that head. She was that, it scared me there. She said, you look new. Have you got a sponsor? And I said, no. She says, well, I'm it. <laughs> and she was she was my sponsor until I moved to, to Omaha, Nebraska. You know, she was my sponsor until I moved to Omaha, Nebraska. And she didn't wait around for me to feel like asking her anything. She disappointed herself to me. And I'll tell you something else about that group. They didn't wait for me to say hello to them. They said hello to me. I have been to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous where I was not even asked if I would like a cup of coffee or if I would like to take a seat. What if I had been a new person? And this is what I love about this group. You are not going to shoot your wounded. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't shoot our wounded. Now, what if I had been brand new and I'd walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and no one spoke to me? Everyone was busy talking to their friends or they were busy sitting in hermetically sealed bubbles of self, which I had seen. What if I were a new person? What if my life depended on you sticking out your hand? What if my life depended on you coming over and saying, would you like a cup of coffee? Welcome to Alcoholics. What if my life depended on that and you didn't do that? I want to belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. I do not want to belong to a group that is not going to stick out their hand to a newcomer. Because it saved my life. The fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. It placed me in a position, it welcomed me to the place where I wanted to be, where I needed to be, where I wouldn't have chosen to be if they had not welcomed me. And they welcomed me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, you know, I have been there ever since. 
couple stories and then I'm going to quit. Uh, I were, I have, my sponsor and I went through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and we, uh, and I met and married Dick in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of the things that, that really attracted to me, me to him was the fact that he made me laugh. And uh, we, we only went together two months and got married and I had to call my sponsor and he had to call his and they had a fit, but we got married anyway. And uh, Dick likes to say he hadn't been sober, he hadn't been sober uh, a year yet and so uh, our relationship was merely lust before we had been sober a year and then once he was sober a year it was a real relationship, you know, <laughs> ever. But uh, the first, our first Christmas that we were sober, um, I was, I, as I told you, I was a very serious person, and I didn't know how to laugh. And I remember the first time I ever laughed was when a, a wonderful black woman named Evelyn talked at our group of where I was a, a greeter. My sponsor made me be a greeter um, at the group, and, and she said uh, she was from the city of brotherly love. And when she was drinking, she some kind of loved them brothers. <laughs> and I laughed. I did just what you did. And it was like I had an earthquake of the faith. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> you know, I was just, it was just shattering to me. It was just hysterical. I couldn't believe it. But I couldn't believe I was laughing. I couldn't believe I was laughing. And... And it was like when Dick, he, we decided we were going to give each other Christmas presents. And the first Christmas, we had six dollars in the checking account, you know, because, you know, we don't come in, at least we didn't come in rich. We came in owing lots. And, uh, so he, but he came home from work that day and he went in and he said, I have a Christmas present for you. And I got mad because we had agreed not to. And then I, then I thought, well, then I got guilty because I didn't give him anything and, you know, on it. So he goes in the bathroom, and a minute later, he comes leaping out of the bathroom, stark naked, <laughs> with a big red bow tied, you know where. <laughs> and he's going, here comes Santa Claus. <laughs> And I laughed, I laughed, and it was, and it, you know, that laughter is God's music. Listen, that's the truth. Laughter is God's music. Because, see, when I hear the music, it's like he, he gets this, it's like I've got this cosmic zipper. And see, I've still got this black junk in here. And every time I greet somebody at the door, Every time I take an act, every time I wash a coffee cup, every time I help somebody else, every time I go to the Alcathon and volunteer, every time I come to one of these conferences and I hear the laughter, it's like God says, you ready, hon? And I laugh and it's like, and he goes, he gets this big cosmic toothbrush and he goes, And then as and then as soon as I get back and sell, back it goes again, back up the cosmic zipper goes, and I've still got some of that little black 
jump in there, you know. But every time I take an action that's out of self, every time that I volunteer to do something, every time that I greet somebody in a meeting, every time that I listen to, you, you know, you see these people wandering around the back, you know, and they're kind of talking to themselves and they're pacing at the back of the meeting. You think those are new people, right? They're sponsors. <laughs> Every time I listen to a whiner one more time, I can hear it. He's calling me up. So that in actual fact, he is in action. But I have to do my part. I am no, I am like that Christmas tree. It's beautiful with the lights on it and everything. But pull out the plug. It's not nearly as pretty, is it? When I'm plugged in to the power of Lady Van, I'm shining. You can see it, can't you? <laughs> and the actions of the staff just like, you know, there's this story about this guy who's, he's got, he's taking care of his little kid on a Saturday or something, and the kid keeps pulling on him, you know, keeps pulling on him. He says, Daddy, I want to go to McDonald's. I want to go to McDonald's. And the guy's busy. So he says, I'll tell you what. He goes and he gets this map of the world out of a magazine or something, and he cuts this map of the world up into pieces like a jigsaw puzzle. And he mixes them up, and he gives them to the kid. He figures he's got at least a half hour to finish his work. And then he'll go on. And the kid is back in two minutes. And the guy says, how did you do that so fast? And the kid said, there was a picture of a man on the other side. I put the man together and the world came together. That's the story of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life. But I need help to do that. I need help. And I've always had it when I've been willing. I can either defend what I am and stay the way that I am, or I can become what I want to be, but I have to ask for the power. And I have to, I see it in your eyes. I see it coming through you. I see the light. I can't see the light in me. But I can see the light in you. I'm going to tell you something. Last night, we went to what it was a sea captain's restaurant. And there's a damnedest thing there. There's all these seagulls. Thousands of seagulls that are sitting out in the sea in front of this place. There's, and it was dark. And we could see thousands of seagulls. And so when we went in, Jackie and Judd and, and Dick and I, I asked the lady why they sat there. Because they were just sitting there, weren't doing anything. They were just sitting there. Meeting, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> we, Jackie and I just looked like they were visiting. You know, they were visiting. One of them get up, fly over and sit out with somebody else and visit a while and then get up. We went out and watched them. And they've got this big uh, 
spotlight thing that goes out into the ocean from this restaurant. So when I blew my mind, I asked the waitress or I asked the, the hostess, why, why are they sitting out there? I've never seen anything like that in my life. She said, we think it's the light. We think it's the light. And uh, that's what it is here. I think it's the light that keeps me coming back over, over, and over again on the longest day and the darkest night. There's a man walking on the beach. And uh, it was early morning and there had been a storm the night before and it was real misty. Like it, kind of like it was this morning. And uh, in the distance, in the fog, he saw a man throwing something back into the ocean. And uh, as the man was walking, as he came closer to the man he was throwing, he saw that his hand was littered with starfish all over. And uh, as the man was walking, opposed to the man who was throwing, he said to the guy, what are you doing? And the man who was throwing said, well, I'm throwing these starfish back in the ocean so they can live. They can't live up here. They dry out. They die. And the man who was walking said to the man who was throwing, but what possible difference can it make? There are thousands of them. And the man who was throwing said, it makes all the difference in the world to this one. And you've made all the difference in the world to this one. Thank you.